0: Hey friends, Chaz here, and I want to let you know that the Kingdom Roots podcast is brought to you by Northern Seminary, where we believe a seminary education can help you lead your church to engage the world. That's why one of our favorite things to do at Northern is to open up all of our classes for a day for you to come and experience, whether you're just wondering what seminary is like or seriously considering enrolling, we're opening up all of our classes on February 24th to A Taste of Northern. You could join me in the class I'm currently attending with my cohort on New Testament theology with Dr. Randy Reeves or a number of other classes. To not miss out on this incredible opportunity, go to seminary.edu forward slash taste to learn more and sign up. Hope to see you on class on February 24th. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about a culture of world subversion. All right, Scott, so we've been talking about um, different cultures that it looks like in the church as pastors to be able to to foster and nurture really an overall culture of Christoformity. Before we jump in uh, to a world of subversion, could you just kind of recap some of the different things that we've talked about and what it means to have a church culture and why pastors are the ones to nurture that?
1: Every church is a culture. So, the question you asked, Chad, is a good one. And it's one that I believe more pastors, more churches, more, let's say, elder boards or deacon boards, and um, ordinary Christians in ordinary churches should be thinking about. And that is that every one of every church is a culture, and a culture is more than just an environment. It is. Um, it's like a living agent, and some yeah. church cultures are more living and more, more like an agent and more systemic in the sense that you encounter almost a personality at, at, at a church. And others are pretty calm, and you, you don't sense that much about it, but every church is a culture, and that culture is formed in interaction between pastors and leaders and congregants and congregants, and pastors, and leaders, and the lines get blurred. But the, uh, the interaction is one in which um, good pastors with good congregations are pastors who nurture Christlikeness, or what I like to call Christoformity, what Michael Gorman calls cruciformity. Good pastors nurture Christoformity. And congregations expand that nurture and nurture it themselves and then nurture the pastor into nurturing mm-hmm. more formity, so that it becomes a living agent of formity in the church. Every church needs to see and to examine, self-examine, ask questions of itself as to what kind of culture that church has formed and is forming.
0: Yeah and so it's not just a one-sided deal but it's a reciprocal kind of relationship and community that exists and I mean I just, it reminds me of something I heard great that was yesterday is like sometimes I feel like in pastoring we just feel our job is to motivate people but if we're if this is two-sided then our job's not to try to motivate or inspire people but it's really to unlock what a Christ life looks like in them and and because God's called them to some everybody to some unique purposes and and callings in in their life and so yeah this is definitely two way
1: yeah yeah I, I and and i I think maybe I've quoted this uh, it's in a book that my daughter and I have now submitted to a publisher um David Brooks said, never underestimate. The significance of the culture or the environment in which a person works because that, that place where we work mm-hmm. has the capacity to make us what it is. So um, we should not underestimate the significance of a church culture.
0: For sure. And so this specific culture we're talking about today is world subversion, which one of the things, uh, I really like how you start this chapter um, with one of the things that's so challenging to this is is people pleasing. And especially as pastors, just that inclination, that pressure that sometimes we feel um, to please the people who are part of our congregations. And so I guess I would be curious um, what you think inspired and enabled Paul to remain faithful and not fall into the people pleasing that Eugene Peterson described so vividly.
1: Um, let, let me put it, uh, let me back up just a, a second here and, and emphasize that Paul uh, has a, has a radar to detect worldliness And in his relationship, particularly with the churches, house churches, church at Corinth, Paul was beginning to see things develop that he did not like. And he saw worldliness taking place, empire, power, status, money, um, taking advantage, uh, immorality, dishonesty, lack of integrity, etc. He begins to see these things, and he knows that some of these things are key ingredients of virtues, as it were, of how to succeed in Corinth and in the Roman world and the Roman way of life, what Bruce Winter calls Romanitas. So Paul sees this worldliness, and I, I want to just make a comment that I don't think that we are as concerned today about worldliness as we probably ought to be. Um, People who like to take a prophetic stance about things, uh, which means they're going to be critical of the powers, uh, could very well be people who are perceiving worldliness. But just because they perceive worldliness in the Republican Party or in evangelical support of the Republican Party doesn't mean that they have a great radar for detecting worldliness in other ways. So I I do believe we need to spend some time thinking more and um, exegeting our congregations, uh, worldliness quotient. Uh, and what I've often said is that I grew up in American fundamentalism and we had a radar up for Mm -hmm. the world. We Mm -hmm. knew what the world was. And, um, and so, uh, I know we've lost that sense. Uh, We've become much more encultured Christians, much more comfortable in our world, and um, not as critical of it as we might be. So uh, having said that, Eugene Peterson, uh, in one of his wonderful books about pastoring, talks about the necessity that he as a pastor has not been hired to maintain the status quo, or to give people what they want, rather his responsibility is to nurture them into what I'm calling crystal formity, and to do that at times he has to subvert the world in which they live. He has to subvert their longings, their desires, their expectations, what they expect of church, what they expect of themselves, what they expect of their world, and um, that's part of the task of world subversion and. So, you asked the question, uh, what do I think inspired and enabled Paul to do this? Is I think the Apostle Paul had such a firm grip on the significance of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that he learned to interpret everything through the lens of how closely what was said and what was happening were to. The let's say to crystal formity to crystal formity to the pattern of the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if he saw two businessmen interacting, if he saw two businesswomen interacting, Paul judged uh, that behavior, and I don't mean judge in a negative way. Paul examined that behavior, those behaviors, not by saying, "Well, is this going to be profitable?" Is this going to be fun? Is this going to be good? Are are so and so? Is so and so going to get rich? Paul said, "Is this conformity to Christ? Uh, does this look like a Christ-like business transaction?" I mean, this is a powerful idea, and I think in Second Corinthians chapters eight and nine, Paul does this very thing with respect to the Corinthians and their idea of giving. And how does he look at giving? He says, this is how Christ lived. He gave himself, God gave his son, Christ gave himself entirely in order to make someone else flourish. So that's what Paul expects of Corinthians with respect to their funds and money with respect to the poor saints of Jerusalem. So Paul measured behaviors by how consistent it was with the pattern of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's why I think Paul was inspired and enabled to remain faithful and to detect worldliness.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's so helpful, and I definitely agree that that's. Obviously, that's captured Paul's whole life and how he orients everything in view of the cross and resurrection of Jesus and life of Jesus um, that he understands. And and the way, like, as you were talking earlier on about the tension between... Um, our ability as the church to spot worldliness and then how do we call it out? And it seems a lot of times churches land on either end of the spectrum of, like you said, prophetic or really just antagonistic uh, again, everything against the world. And, you know, we're in total isolation or it's total capitulation, and we're, we're all, um, you know, just in the midst and, and saturated with the culture that we don't even see worldliness. And yet, that is neither of what Paul did um, w- with how he approached it and, and I feel like so much of his willingness to see the the cross and resurrection and and his living out and continuing the story of Jesus in the world um, enabled him to to, to not be, overly judgmental to just turn people away, though there was judgment at times, um, but he was able to just hold up the mirror to say, hey, are you looking like Jesus? Are you looking like the cross and resurrection um, in, in the way you're living as a way of approaching world worldliness versus being overly judgmental oh, or overly sympathetic, I guess you could yeah. say. Would you say that, that's fair?
1: Yeah, I think that's how Paul did it. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I was uh, getting at. Is that he was, uh, he was able to look at things and say, uh, "Does this look like Christ?"
0: Yeah, yeah. And one of those things that was so blatant in Corinth was that of honor. Why do you think Paul would say the pursuit of honor is so corrosive to the way of Jesus?
1: Well, honor was a huge term in the Roman world, and uh, people were motivated by honor. And young boys who were educated and who were going to become or who wanted to become somebody in a Roman city, say like Corinth, would go to school and learn stories of people who acquired honor. And they their honor is notably demonstrated in statues and monuments erected in their honor uh, on busy streets and passageways in in a, in a city like Corinth. So, so Paul knows uh, all about honor and yet Paul subverts the quest for honor. I, I think Paul believed there's a legitimate form of honor and, and that it's okay to be honored for legitimate things. But Paul had a radar out for the quest for glory mm-hmm. and power and honor. Uh, Chaz, we see this in our churches today, in celebrity cultures. Celebrity pastors don't happen because some ambitious, mostly male, pastor wants to become a celebrity. Um, someone one time said a celebrity is someone who's famous for being famous, even though they've yeah. done nothing. But yeah. celebrity, celebrity pastors are nurtured by pastors who find people around them who nurture that celebrity uh, persona. And pastors then love this glory and this attention and they find people who will support it, who are sycophantic and um, who are yes men and yes women in board meetings. And many of these celebrity pastors then become power mongers who punish anyone uh, who doesn't support the glory system and the honor system that is at work in a celebrity culture. Uh, But uh, Paul saw this. And so it's probably, I mean, for instance, Paul Paul knew at some level that he could be a celebrity in certain contexts. Now, he's not going to be a celebrity in the middle of Ephesus Mm. um, because He believed the wrong things and he was doing the wrong things. But there are smaller house church groups uh, with villas that have significant income uh, where Paul was a somebody. And Paul, yet, instead of wanting to be a somebody, instead of nurturing his celebrity culture, Paul used terms for himself and for those around him that, directly and intentionally and even provocatively subverted mm-hmm. this system of honor that was so typical of the Roman world and cities like Corinth. And one of the great passages about this is a few, um, uh, and I know we're bleeding into uh, further topics here, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul uh, describes himself as scum of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul saw that, um, that the glory culture, the honor culture of the Roman way of life, which when I grew up playing sports, my junior high and high school coaches talked about pride. You play for pride. And that was a tip of the hat to the honor culture of the Roman world, where you, you played for the glory that it would bring you for the honor of playing your best and not humiliating yourself in front of thousands of fans you put, you played you played for the glory you competed for the prize so that you would be given glory and honor and that's a lot about mm-hmm. sports but that's a lot about the work world people are successful and they get all kinds of praise and honor and glory and Paul saw this as a serious problem in the church and he said this is not the way we work and, and here is, are his two big ideas. Number one, the way of Christ is the way of humiliation. It is the way of the cross. And only through dying to self does the proper glory come. And then if you die to self, you're no longer worried about glory, obviously. The other side is, is that the glory goes to God. This is an interesting feature of Second Corinthians 8 to 9, is that giving money in the ancient world, Uh, Being a benefactor, a wealthy person who distributed uh, funds, money, whatever, for the good of society and for others, always got glory. Mm -hmm. There was a plaque. There was an inscription. There was a statue. There was a proclamation. Uh, There was something that brought that person glory. And it is fascinating what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 8 to 9, he does this in Romans 15 as well, is that he subverts the glory and honor that comes to the person who's generous by saying that all the glory of benevolence and charity and generosity goes to God. So, Paul subverts it by the manner of life and he subverts it by the direction of the praise. Is that Paul doesn't say things like this look, if you give a lot of money, people are going to be impressed and they're going to praise you. Paul says, give a lot of money and God will be glorified. That mm-hmm. is subversion.
0: Yeah, and that's—I mean—that's—that takes sacrifice. It goes back to, you know, it is an example of what we started off talking about of how he saw things going on in the community, and he says, "Okay, hold up the mirror of what this looks like in light of the cross and resurrection, and the life Jesus wants us to live." And that means when we give our things, it's God who gets glory and honor. And so, uh, in that, you talked about like for pastors, uh, some of the temptation can be the celebrity culture and that desire and longing, um, but I think sometimes it can even trickle down to things almost as simple as, as titles and the titles that we latch onto, um, and sometimes leverage for honor or glory or whatever. What would you say to people who think it's important to make a big deal about different titles in church leadership?
1: Well, most people aren't going to say uh, we should make a big deal, but yeah. they make a big
0: deal. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, um, I think we have to practice something that happened in the 80s and 90s. Um, And I remember when I grew up that you always called the pastor, pastor. Mm -hmm. You never, we never called our pastor Ed. Uh, That was just inappropriate. But I remember my mother talking to me when I was in high school, college probably, that one of the first pastors in the United States who went by his first name was Jerry Falwell. Well, there was there was a lot of, of a rumbling about Jerry Falwell going by his name, is that it was disrespectful to pastors.
0: Hmm.
1: All right. Um, so there's been a tendency, and I think this is overall a good tendency, that we now know Andy Stanley and Rick Warren, we talk about them by their name. We, we often don't say Pastor Stanley or Pastor uh, Warren. This is, this is a good thing. Uh, and yet uh, there is coming with this informality and this lack of titles, in a sense, um, a lack of hierarchy and a, an assault on uh, specialness for the pastor. There is, um, there is um, a missing respect for the calling that God has given certain people in our lives, Mm -hmm. and that we speak to those people with respect. Paul lived in a world where titles were a big deal, Mm -hmm. and many of us are in a world like that. I remember uh, when I got my PhD that I could be called doctor. And I remember distinctively uh, a student asking me in a class where I was teaching at the time at Trinity, said, what do we call you now? And I remember, because I was a Gospels teacher, Matthew 23 came to mind for me, where Jesus says, don't call anyone teacher, rabbi, etc. You have one teacher. Uh, it's me. It's the Father. You you are not people of, of titular grandeur. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, I want you to call me Scott, because that's what my mom and dad called me. And we're brothers and sisters mm-hmm. So I I think that there's something to that in that we need to learn to subvert um, the quest for glory and honor that comes by having a title. And yet I think we should respect some of these titles for what they what they suggest and connote. You know, it's very interesting that the Apostle Paul who probably knew the saying of Jesus in Matthew 23, don't call anybody father, called himself father at times with his uh, with his churches. And he calls himself an apostle. Mm-hmm. And he refers to other people by title. So this wasn't taken woodenly and it wasn't taken rigorously and <laughs> scrupulously. It was rather probably a profound point. If your quest is honor and glory, we probably need to subvert your title, and we'll call you by your name. Mm -hmm. If you are a person who is humble and not driven by honor and glory, um, being called pastor or professor or doctor is probably healthy. And I've been around people of both sorts. And uh, frankly, uh, most of the time it's been the young people, the young doctorate, the young pastor who wants to be called by the title. Because a person who's comfortable, a woman who's comfortable in her skin as a leader in a church uh, knows that the title doesn't convey the relationship the way the relationship is meant to be done. So that I think, uh, by and large, these titles can be useful. They should be used. Um, And at times, the church needs to use these titles. I was just looking at the church of someone who wrote me, and I wanted to know where he's an author and and where he went to church. So I looked on his church site, and I noticed this. Uh, It was all white guys on the uh, pastoral staff, and then there was a woman. It was like three rows of white guys, all with the name pastor. And then when it came to a woman, it was a minister Hmm. uh, Um, I think it was, uh, it it wasn't, I don't think it was just of the children. It was, it was higher. It would be higher or whatever than that. And I thought to myself, that's a church that needs to call that woman pastor because she's. Um, So I saw it there. I remember when a friend of mine who was a female who was functioning as a pastor and went into the pastor and said, uh, I think it's time that, um, I'd be recognized for the pastor that I am. And he said, we're going to change that right now. And so they, they had a, a, a titular change, mm-hmm. and she became pastor. Uh, so sometimes those, those titles are important because they convey a message and significant of the kind of giftedness that is being exercised by the person. So uh, I think we have to play this one with discernment.
0: Sure. And, Yeah. And so when Paul had in mind, you know, when he was talking about different roles and different responsibilities and leaders, it it wasn't necessarily that he had like the offices that we have in mind, sometimes a senior pastor or associate pastor or youth pastor, some of those things. uh, He was more looking at the um the the quality and the behavior going on in the community um, over against some of the the titles, and especially always subverting anything if it was ever used as a means to grasp honor or glory. Is that
1: right? Yeah, the intent and motivation of the Mm -hmm. title being used by whether it's a sycophantic congregation or a group of people or a person, Mm -hmm. or whether it's a power-mongering pastor who wants to be recognized with power.
0: I mean,
1: mm-hmm. I think it's motivation and intent.
0: Yeah. So you said sycophantic. I, what is that word? What does it mean?
1: Uh, sucks up to someone and uh, always their flatterer. Uh, it's flattery. A sycophant yeah. is someone who is always flattering somebody else, always saying the right thing.
0: And so to go back to kind of what we started off the conversation with, I mean, that creates the culture and that's, you know, that kind of feeds the culture of that celebrity thing that's so damaging and uh, corrosive to the way of Jesus. So to end our time together, um, one last question, as we look at world subversion, what would you say if Paul were to look at the churches in America, what do you think he would guide pastors to subvert in our cultures, in our churches?
1: Okay. Um, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Number one, he would subvert our obsession with politics as the solution to our society and culture. Yeah. He would subvert militarism for the violence that it breeds and the kind of culture that it forms is that we can win because we're more powerful so we can do what we want. He would subvert the lack of compassion for. Immigrants at our borders who need to be treated with with care as images of God. He would subvert the radical capitalism and the way we live way beyond our means and living in pleasure. Uh, He would subvert. I think he would subvert the inattentiveness to most Christians to Bible reading and to Mm. prayer Mm. Uh, because. They have the word of God on their phone, on their iPad, on their tablet, on their computer. They've got it on their watch. They got it everywhere. And people aren't reading the Bible. And people aren't praying. So I think, I think Paul would have plenty of things to subvert where worldliness is encroaching in American culture.
0: Yeah. And he was, I mean, we, we get to learn from him. I'm sorry. I'm glad you, you've written this book and, and look at that and use his example because his example is still the, uh, an example that we can utilize today as, as we seek to create cultures of Christoformity, yeah. um, So as we uh, wrap up this conversation, we only have one more on our Pastor Paul series, and we're coming back with a culture of wisdom. Um, What do people have to look forward to in our final conversation on Pastor Paul?
1: Well, maybe one of the things Paul would subvert as he looks at our culture today is uh, the lack of interest in people who are bald and (laughs) gray-haired, who have experience and who have been around the block and who've traveled many miles and who have learned the ways of God in this world in wisdom. So I think he'd subvert the lack of wisdom in our cultures. That's one thing I think he'd do. So
0: yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Talking about wisdom.
0: Absolutely. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us today. You'll have to join us for our last installment of Pastor Paul and a Culture of Wisdom on our next episode. Uh, well, again, we hope this has been helpful as you think through what it might be that... Um, that God is calling you to subvert and worldliness in your own life, because if we're ever going to be a part of communities that foster this culture, uh, it has to start with us as ourselves and being willing um, to see it at work in our lives so that we might be able to bring the light into our communities uh, where it can also be subverted. So thanks for joining us today. We look forward to joining you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.